This is the MLW Radio Network. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? It's your boy, Blackheart, the head honcho off the top roast podcast. If you love independent and professional wrestling and like all the juicy gossip of the wrestling industry, then look no further than here, OTTR Headquarters. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitch, and Facebook groups, and whatever that you get your podcast from with our, with our latest Last Week of Wrestling, After Darts, Under Boss's Hard Taste, and now a new upcoming trivia game show, Wrestling Every, coming soon. So if you like what you've seen, you love professional wrestling, you love independent wrestling, you love everything about wrestling just yourself, give us a tune. You know, you would not regret it. Blackheart out. Everyone knows a lot of things can change in the span of 10 years. But when it comes to professional wrestling podcasting, one thing is still guaranteed. The Shining Wizards is the only place to get all the latest wrestling news, interviews with the greatest guests, and of course, tons of laughs in discussing the world of wrestling. The show is still available on Monday nights at 7 p.m. East on RantDMRadio.com and Rant Entertainment Media on the TuneIn app. And it's still available on all podcasting platforms. To check us out, head over to ShiningWizards.com where it's still wrestling talk and talk about wrestling. Are you tired of prediction shows? Do you want to fantasy book the companies? Does Bigfoot even really exist? If you answered yes to any of those questions, then check out the podcast that isn't a podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, the standing streamer stands and delivers as he and Vanessa talk about all that's going on in pro wrestling today. Plus, see in-depth conversations with people in and around the wrestling world as guests share their stories and insights about making it in the business. The Putting You Over Podcast. Putting your weeknights over every Tuesday and Thursday. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and good night. My name is Thomas and what's your name? Uh, I'm Alan. Alan. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. We're brothers. That's right. Yeah, yeah the mother, same mother and father. Your room was... Oh, we shared a room. Shared a room. For we shared a room. Thought I knew your face. Yeah, we so go we... way back, mate. Yeah. yeah. We should do a podcast then. Uh, we have. We do. We do a podcast. We do a podcast. What's it called? The Brocast. Yeah, that was planned. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do we do? Well, we cover all different things in the world of pop culture. We're talking about comic books. We're talking about professional wrestling, and we're talking about movies. Go back and watch classic retro wrestling events, the likes of WWE, WCW, and if you do like that, you can check us out on Apple iTunes, also on Podbean, Anchor, and on Podknife. Also, check us out on Twitter at the Broadcast. That's B R O. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Ending. Yeah, it's all right. Good on you. Yeah. Instagram also at the Broadcast Podcast. Remember, we don't spell it with a C. We spell it with a K. Sorry, mate. Take it easy. Two Heels and a Face Wrestling Podcast believes wrestling is a buffet. There's something there for everyone. These guys cover local Chicago indie scene, and all of their episodes can be found at twoheelsandaface.com. The number two heelsandaface.com Hey everyone, my name is referee Tony S and this is Heat, the wrestling podcast. Like you first and foremost, I'm a wrestling fan and for nearly two decades I've maintained law and order inside the squared circle in New England and throughout the country, working with some of the best and brightest from wrestling's past, present, and future. Now, I bring my authoritative tell-it-like-it-is style to the podcast world. Join me each week as we go through all the major headlines from the global companies, independents, and in-between. 
and most importantly, the women will receive the coverage and headlines they truly deserve as they'll empower the second half of the show. Plus, I'll introduce you to my friends and colleagues within all forms of wrestling and entertainment, answer your questions, anything goes, no holds, well, questions barred, and throw in some fun surprises along the way. Get ready for the spark that fuels the flame. Listen on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Front Row Material Brand. My name is Mike Freeland. I'm excited uh, getting back doing some more interviews. I know you guys have been jonesing for more interviews with wrestlers from all around the world, and we definitely have a great interview tonight. Uh, we have a special uh, individual who's a veteran of the Squared Circle as well. He has wrestled in so many places all over the world. Carlos Romo is going to be joining us here. He's had some time in Black Label Pro, also done some time in GCW as well. My gosh, Warrior Wrestling, you name it, he has probably been there. Rev Pro as well. We're going to get a chance to sit down and talk to him about his career so far. What kind of got him into wrestling and uh, where he sees his career as of 2022. All of that and so much more. Let's go ahead and bring him in right now. Carlos, how you doing today, buddy? Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. I just arrived home in Madrid from your store and doing great. That is that is tremendous. Um, obviously, you're talking to us internationally here. How are so you? It's so exciting. I'm doing great. Glad to hear. Uh, so I guess I would say my first thing here to ask you is, when it comes to professional wrestling, what was it that kind of piqued your interest in? What made you decide, hey, you know what? This may be something I might want to do at some point. Well, it's interesting because I think I've been through like two stages in my life with wrestling. Um, at first, it was when I was around 11, 12. That is when, when he first got like big TV time in Spain. And over there, I just became like big fan. But it wasn't something that I knew you, that could be done in Spain. So when I started watching wrestling, I just loved it. But I didn't think of it as a possibility. And then a year, few years later, I stopped watching. And I, and I came back to watching when I turned 18. And with like an adult perspective being like, okay, I understand this is what it is right now, and I still enjoy it. And within that, I had just moved to Madrid when I was 19. It was my first summer in the city. Um, um, college college was over, basketball season was over, all my friends were on holidays. And, it, and I saw a friend that I met at a concert posting pictures on Facebook saying that he was training wrestling and the school where he trained had recently moved, so they had room for more people. And it, for me, it was like, okay, let's try this it's something that I need to do at least like once in my life, but like not necessarily with any aspirations of becoming a wrestler, just something that I wanted to do once at least. And when I went there, it's funny, like the first thing they told me um, uh, was, if you guys want to be professionals, this is not the place for you. Go home and dream about other stuff. They said it in a very different way, but I don't know if it's... Let, they said, I'm going to say it like the right way. They said, go home and masturbate. This is not your thing. Just to everyone, not because of the talent, but just because of the state of wrestling in Spain. Absolutely. That's literally the first sentence we got while we walked through the door. Um, and I was like, sure, okay, but I still want to try and do this and see how it goes and see if I like it and see if I'm good at it and everything. And when I started like becoming good at it, it was like, okay, you guys have said that, but I'm not so sure it needs to be that way. Um, and the more I trained, we only got to train like once a week. Uh, we had no ring. Uh, the first few years that I did here in Spain, we had like eight to ten shows a month. Um, we spent the whole month planning the matches to the point like we write down every single 
thing of the match. So it's like a very different experience growing up in wrestling from everyone else probably that I've met. And it was only like 2016 that we went to see some shows in London and we got to train over there and we saw how training worked. And it was like, oh, oh, now I understand. Like we were bumping like 40 times per training session in mats. It's like, oh, wait. These guys run a training session for like three hours and bump like six, seven, ten, ten times each. You can you can train on them on a Tuesday and have your body ready to train on a Wednesday. Wow. <laughs> so it was it was life changing for us. And then it was only like 2017 when we started to get opportunities in the UK and wrestle. Sorry, wrestling over there. So the first three years that I wrestled, even if they are experienced and for sure like you cannot count them out. I feel like I've only been a professional wrestler. Like, professional wrestler i feel like i was a clay wrestler 2014 to 2017 and professional wrestler from 17 on it's just interesting to hear different people's perspectives on different parts of the world and the, and the way they go about the training and the regimen and the preparation for wrestling um no you're absolutely right you, you can never take anything away because at the end of the day you're you're still in there you're still between the ropes and, and still doing everything that that it takes to put you know a match on i thought it was really interesting you you mentioned before that there would be eight to 10 um, shows a, a month and that you would write, you know, step by step down. Did you find that at any point in time, especially early on in your career, my goodness, that's really hard to remember every single little nuance inside a match, because to me, that would sound like so much memorization. So it was eight to 10 shows a year, not a month. I don't know if, oh, I, if I got it wrong, you got it wrong. It's all good. But it was eight to 10 shows a year. So that meant we had like, no, you're good. So that meant we we would have like a month or a month and a few weeks to plan every single match. So by the point we got to the matches, we knew them like by detail. We had no problem remembering remembering because we had been rehearsing those matches a few times. Like we would have to do like the full matches sometimes at training. So the promoter at the time would see it and be like, I like this, I don't like this, let's change this, let's change that. This needs more emotion, this looks ugly, changing for something. So at that point, it wasn't that hard to remember because we, we had a whole month and something to study for every match. It was when we started going to the UK and we had to switch from that way of planning to the standard way of planning that it was like, oh, okay, everything I planned in like a month and a half, I need to plan now in two hours. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit harder for me, but still, we still get there. So obviously, you know, starting off um, in Spain and then going over to the UK and doing things that way, what what other different nuances did you find uh, as far as the speed and the tempo, obviously, of, of how much time you have to prepare for a match? Was there anything else that you found that was kind of unique about, wow, this is really an eye opener of the way they handle wrestling, whether the way they talk about it or their training, anything that stood out like, wow, this is way way unique from what i'm used to yeah the first like big game changer for us came with chain wrestling what people call chain wrestling just any kind of technical wrestling that is usually put at the beginning of the matches but i like to do it all around, all over the matches but in spain first of all like people didn't like it if you did like any kind of technical wrestling that didn't include like a flip within the first minute that almost even blew you uh our coach didn't like it to the point that I always loved it, but I had to look for A-Kid after the training sessions and be like, hey, A-Kid, can you teach me technical wrestling, please? So he would teach me 
the basic calls and I'll come next Saturday because we only had like one training session a week and be like, hey, hey kid, I forgot everything. Can you teach me that again, please? <laughs> and so then he would reteach me the same holes he taught me. And then the following week, I'll come to him and do the same thing. It's like, no, now you've done two weeks now. You can put me the holes now. I'll teach you a rehearsal. So I was like, okay. But we have to do it on our own. And that's how he learned it himself. He just looked for it and learned it himself because it's not what they wanted uh, when we started. And then we went to the UK and people... and the chain wrestling was written down in the matches we had. Whenever we had chain wrestling, it's like, I'll reverse you this way, you reverse me this way, which is like crazy when I think about it now. But at the moment, it was what the promoter asked us to do, so that's what we did. And then we went to the UK, started training over there, and it was just doing improv with chain wrestling, with technical wrestling, which is the standard practice. And for us, it was like, wow, mind-blowing. <laughs> it was really <laughs> mind-blowing. And we were like, okay, um, how much you do? How much chain wrestling do you do in the matches? And don't people get bored of it? Don't people boo you? Uh, what do you know to stop and go from chain wrestling into different spots and different parts of the structure? <laughs> and for all that, for all of us, like, even if we knew it had to be that way, because we watched independent matches and we watched matches and we knew the way we planned couldn't happen and it didn't make sense with the things we were seeing. We had never done it that way. So it was like a big shock for us getting used to that. And then just the training, like we were doing for just for warm up, I remember like back bump, front bump, flip bump, like a couple of rounds, then like four corners bumps, then like a round of all of them, plus whatever we did in the exercises. So we took like, just for warming up, we took around like 15 to 20 bumps. Oh my God. Um, and then going to the UK and seeing like, they were just like putting a lot of focus in rolling. Yeah, I know. And they were just putting like so much focus in rolling. And it was only during the exercises, if the exercises needed it, they, they put a bump in. I was like, okay, now I can understand like, how much I learned in these three hours and how my body is feeling after the session and why could you train and why could you do like three matches a weekend? Now I understand. So those were like the first two big game changes for us. So obviously you're over in the UK and was there anybody that you really struck a good friendship with or somebody who kind of took you under their wing, somebody who was influential and really important to the early stages of your career as you were over there. Any names of anybody who you were like, wow, my, uh, my experience was a lot different because of this individual who really took a, a strong investment in me. Um, I mean, it's not because it took a strong investment in me, but it's just because like, I think we kind of invested in each other. Um, and if anything, it's weird that I invested more in him because he was like at a higher point in his career and his wrestling than me. But um, it was A-Kid and me because like A-Kid and I started tagging as Team White Wolf and we started going over to the UK and like we did a good couple of years of our career tagging together, going to the UK, doing our first US tours and stuff like that, um, traveling all over Europe. And the thing is... Um, when I got there, he was the best. There were a couple of other people. Um, our good friend Tayas, who he used to tag with in Madrid, he did King of Trios with us. But then, like, life got in the way. So even if he still wrestles here and there, he had to switch his focus to other things. And he's, like, 10 years older than both of us. So something like that. Not necessarily 10 years, but around that thing. So obviously, like, it gets to a point in life where you, unless, like, wrestling is really paying off or close to paying off, you need to see where your priorities are. So, but then Aiken and I, he was very, very good. 
And I was starting to get good, starting to get good. And the more we went to the UK, the more it was like, okay, I think I can do this too. And the more like main events and stuff we had in Madrid, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready. And then he wrestled Ricochet in Madrid. It was, was the first time where he wrestled an import. Oh, wow. And he, and he, had, a, he had a killer match. Like that match is free on YouTube and it was insane. Um, like, I think if I watch it now, it's probably like a very fine indie match, but just not like what we thought it was at the moment because it was the first time we had, saw, we had seen anything like that. The crowd was mental. And it was like, okay, now that you've wrestled this guy that is like a top guy worldwide, we know it's not that you were good here, but it's that you're good. And I was getting at a decent level. I was like one step behind him. But it was like, okay, I think I can like hold myself up. So we approached the um, White Wolf people, which were where we trained. They were like very restrictive with letting us wrestle outside of the company because they didn't want to show a bad image for Spanish wrestling. Like had someone that is not ready go outside, wrestle somewhere, have a shit show, and then uh, that being the image for Spanish wrestling for other people. So, but after that, I went to them. I was like, hey, I think he's more than ready to wrestle. I asked him first. He was like, hey, would you like to try and wrestle outside? Like, do you actually want to make this like your job and be like become a professional wrestler as a job? Like, he was like, I mean, yeah, but. There's no way. It's like, do you want to try? Like, I'm, I'm up for, like, managing everything. Because he was, like, extremely shy at the moment. He was, like, a very introvert person. And I was, like, always, like, super super outgoing. And I had, deal, like, I used to work in the music industry. So I was used to dealing with, like, English, uh, emails in English and stuff like that. So I was, like, if you're up for it, like, let me talk to the guys and see if, they, if they're good with us trying to go outside and wrestle. And I was, like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So I talked to the guys and they were like, okay, sure, try. And we managed to get a couple of bookings and we got like King of Trios. And that's where we wrestled British Strong Style. That was like our second match in the UK. And it was like, at the time, 2017, I think it was Pete was, Pete Dunn, now known as Bush, yep. was WWE UK champion. Tyler Bate and Trent Seven were like pro tag team champions. They had just been NXT tag team champions. They won at Royal Arbor, Arbor Hall. It was around that era. I don't know exactly which titles they had, but they had like all the titles. And they were like at their like peak indie moment within the cool WWE stuff starting to happen. So they wrestled three nobodies and they had a killer match. So everybody was like, okay, who the fuck are these three nobodies? <laughs> um, and that's when Aikid and I just started traveling and traveling and traveling. And obviously he was a huge inspiration for me. Because I saw the wrestler he managed to become even being in Spain without getting the other training. And he knew about so much of the other wrestling. Like, he was the one that introduced me to Danielson's Ring of Honor work, which is some of my favorite wrestling ever. Um, I remember, like, the first time we were training in London, um, we would would be in a train back from training and he'd have, like, Kenta Ring of Honor DVDs. And we'll be watching that in his phone, uh, things like that. Um, then him like teaching me all the technical stuff. He was always like one step ahead in terms of planning and the knowledge he had for wrestling. So obviously he was like my reference, and I would kept on asking him and trying to learn as much as possible from him while we were learning together about the world and about wrestling itself. So obviously he he was the the one that my career would be completely different or maybe it wouldn't be like it is today without him. 
So when we talk about now known now known as Axiom, sorry, you're <laughs> just fine. in case anybody. So we we talk about wrestling being you know different in different parts of the world. Obviously, Spain, <laughs> obviously in the UK, different in the United States as well. There's definitely different styles in even Japan as well. So it's it, there's different kind of uh, genres with inside uh, wrestling itself. Let me ask you, when it came to when you initially started training with Spain and then obviously going over to the UK, promos, um, the storytelling aspect of wrestling outside of the physicality of it, how much of that um, did you learn and how soon did you start being taught those kinds of things? Um, how to cut a promo or how to tell mm -hmm. a story. So the the more of the show business aspect of the business, when did that start to become something that you were like, oh, wow, this is definitely a big part of it as well? I don't think nobody ever taught us in Spain how to cut, how to cut, um, how to cut a promo or to tell a story. I don't think nobody ever did. The bookers had like big stories and they did write them and they were like a big part of what we did. But we were rarely part of the creating process. It was more like we were children and we would be given like presents to be like, hey, this is what you got. You did this. This is that. I'd be like, oh, sick. That's so fun. But like, I remember all of us at White Wolf, like the guys that were starting, like we would get together, like after the shows, because we, we yeah, it was funny as fuck. Um, we would have to like, for the venue we used, we had to do like turns of doing like security guards for them so we could get the venue. And when we were doing those turns, we would all like debate. It's like, what do you think this storyline is going? What do you think they're going to do with this and this and this and this? But we didn't know. <laughs> um, luckily, like I've always been, um, I've never been nervous in for a live crowd. I used to play in bands. And, and as I said, I'm very outgoing. So it didn't cost me and it wasn't hard for me to, whenever I got the mic, like talk and get the crowd with me or against me. Um, in fact, I think I only got the mic to do like a promo in the ring. It was probably like a year and a half in and I was already like super over in Spain. I had done like a heel turn and everybody was like wild against me. And I still hadn't had a second of the mic. I did a lot of talking during my matches because people were right, right up against the ring. So you could hear everything. So people definitely had that interaction with me, but I never got a live mic until then. And telling stories through the matches or telling stories outside of the matches. If it was outside of the matches, it was just them, the bookers that did them. And through the matches, it was up to us to find a way to tell those stories. But even like the way we planned it, it's not the way we used to plan matches is not the way I plan matches now. I now think about a structure. I now think about a story that I want to tell. Over there, it was like, what do we want to do? <laughs> we do things. This feels natural to do. Let's do this. What, um, you know, when you look at the landscape of pro wrestling today, obviously things are always changing and evolving, you know, that the business really, um, it, it goes from different extremes. So over here in the United States, we went from a very, uh, they called it the attitude era in the WWE, where things were very over the top, very sexual based. Then we had uh, the PG era where things were very kid friendly and heroes and your typical villains and we had ECW where it was ultra violent. Um, is there a specific type or genre that you feel like you fit into really well? Or do you feel like you're kind of a jack of all trades where just depends on where you're at, you can kind of fit right into that? Or do you have a specific one that like a CZW or a GCW that is definitely very ultra realistic? Um, which one do you would you say, you know what, that's definitely the one I prefer? 
Um, I like doing a mix, and I like to consider myself as a jack of all trades or try to be a jack of all trades. It's true that I'm not that much up to doing death matches and ultraviolet wrestling. I would only want to do any of that if it's a combination to a blood feud. I love watching it. I respect the hell out of it and respect the people who do it. I don't think it's for me. The only reason why I would do it if, if, is if it made sense storyline-wise, which case sure. I would be happy to do. But besides that, um, like I've done one hardcore match in my life, which was like a combination to a blood feud in Spain. We had like, I did like a ladder, like a, to- like a moonsault from the top of the ladder onto a person onto, uh, that was like laying on a table, like stuff like that. It was like, when it gets to the point where it has to happen, like I will happily do it, uh, but just not for the sake of it. For me, I love watching it and I respect it. And I really enjoy it. Um, but I think like, I want to think I'm a jack of all trades. Um, it's true that I now, like my focus is to become that work rate person that you can always trust to have a good match in your card, like no matter who you put him against or what's the situation. Um, people like Danielson, Hero, or more recent people like Speedball, Mike Bailey, those have been like inspirations for me in that aspect. In in the case of like, you know, if you see that person in a card, you know that match is going to be good and you can always trust that person to put on a good match. And that's been like my goal for the last few years, but I can do everything. And I was talking the other day, I did a show with, it was Palm House Pro. Palm House is a venue in, I think it's Evanston called, right outside of Chicago. Um, and they told me, it was like a very new crowd, and I was like, listen, I can do whatever you need. Um, I can be a heel, I can be a baby, I can have like a killer match, I can have a fun match, I can work with people that are less, less experienced, I can do anything, I can be an entertainer, whatever you need for the show, I can do it. So I ended up being in a four-way, um, being a heel, and they were like, we in this case we were like more entertainment than anything else because it's a crowd that is very new to wrestling. So I took a bit of like the weight of planning the match to structure the whole thing and try to get the most out of everyone and to get the crowd what they wanted. And I think if you watch that match back, you you think it's just a normal match. It's not something that I would say like go out of your way to watch it. Because it's wrestling-wise, it was fun, but it was nothing special. But as a life experience, it was great. Everybody was super involved. Everybody was like laughing. Everybody was popping for the moves, for the kickouts, hating the heels, enjoying the work of the babyface and cheering for them. And it's good. Like I enjoy being in those different situations when it's like I know, and I prefer to have like fifteen minute bangers and try to do that but if I put in that in a different situation know that I can do that work and if that's needed I'll absolutely do that so I always want to be a jack of all trades because you want to be a valuable asset to whatever company you're wrestling for and that's what I want to think myself as, as an asset like do I make the show better or worse I I want to think that I, I can make the show better in many ways that's how I always what I always work towards no that makes a, a lot of sense here um so kind of going backwards a little bit here in our conversation, um, you normally hear, like with New Japan wrestling, 
um, the baby faces would travel with the different factions or the heels would travel with different factions. Um, and there would be long bus rides over in Japan as far as going from one city to the next. As far as a as a promotion would go, let's say you were traveling with them in Europe. Um, tell me a little bit about how the, the traveling mm-hmm. was. Uh, we, we often hear in the United States, you know, you learn a lot in the car ride. Uh, from veterans and whatnot, and you also hear some funny stories of things that happened with car full of wrestlers. Um, tell me a little about some travel stories. Was there anything that was kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened, or this was an awesome car ride because I learned mm-hmm. this or that from someone? So take me a little bit on the uh, on the travel experiences and what you took away from it so far. I'm trying to think. Um, there's one for sure that I remember. Um, when Aiken and I first started uh, wrestling in the UK, because I ended up moving to the UK from the beginning of 2019 to mid 2020. But up until then, um, I'd be traveling every single weekend from Madrid to the UK, more or less. Um, there was a point where we did attack pro wrestling, and uh, it just we booked our flight in from a different city that the that we booked the outbound, like the the return flight, sorry. So I think we flew from Madrid into Bristol and we were meant to come back from Birmingham or something. No, we flew from Madrid into London and then we were meant to come back from Birmingham, something like that. Okay. Um, And then, so we do the show and we leave and we're going to London, we're going back to London. And the car is going like very late. They picked us up late. Uh, traffic was very bad. And we were like monitoring, like already like looking at next flights from the from the airport and everything. Because it was like, I don't think we're making it. Like, I hope we are, but I don't think we are. And at some point I just go like, wait, I'm looking for, uh, let's say like flight um, was meant to take off 4 p.m. And it was 2 p.m. But it was me already knowing that we probably wouldn't make it. And I was already looking at all the flights from that airport. And then I clicked. It's like, wait, our flight doesn't show up here. What's wrong? Like, it should still show up here, like still two hours to the flight. And then I go look at our plane tickets and we were meant to come back from Birmingham and we were going to London. Oh, my. We had just traveled so much and we were... So you just like just find like finding the cheapest flights from wherever, and we we were like so just so exhausted from all the traveling like every single weekend. It all became like a big blur, and we were like, okay, like guys, don't rush. Like we're going to London, and our flight was from Birmingham, so we missed it anyway. Let's just find another flight from London. <laughs> so yeah, we went to a completely different city. That was a very funny one. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. You're right, though. I mean, when you're traveling and you're wrestling and you're living in the moment, you're young. I mean, things do kind of start to become a little blurry. And there's so much going on at that time, too. So I can completely understand where things just start to meld together. Um, Speaking of of traveling, what about injuries? You know, we we often hear wrestlers talk about injuries they sustain. And it was at the time... Um, luckily injuries have really respected me throughout my career. So I want to touch wood and and cross my fingers and hope it stays this way. (laughs) I've always had like little nagging things 
like every wrestler has. We all had and we we will always have. They like every time, like always. There's always something that hurts in your body whenever you wrestle, and that's always gonna happen. You just have to assume that. But um, the only one that was like a bit bigger, um, there was like there were a couple ones. One was like a concussion that had me out for a month, but it didn't. I didn't have to lose any time because it was when I was like, only working like one show a month in Spain. So I just felt like a bit dizzy at work the day after the show. And my friend who had played rugby for some time, he was like, dude, I'd go to the hospital and check it. You might have a concussion. And I did. And he was very right. It was it was a light concussion. So I just rested it for like a month and was perfectly fine. Um, and then there was another one that I didn't end up going to the hospital for it. It's probably like a next strain, something like that. Um, when I wrestled this year, at the beginning of this year for WXW, and I wrestled Christian Archer in the second to last move of the match after a very like good, fun 15-minute match, it was my my WXW main show debut, I think, too. So it was a very important match for me, and the match was going great. And um, just second to last, to last uh, move, Tristan goes to give me a lariat. He calls lariat, but he didn't say discus. So I fed a certain way when I saw him turning to do like the inside out bump, make it look great. But then he turned midway and then did the discus. So for the position, like the position where he hit the disc, the lariat was different from where I thought he would hit it. So that compromised my mid-air turn. It was just a freak accident, like bad communication, and there's no hard feelings at all. And we love each other, like we, we're good friends. We wrestle after after that, and and even if when that happened, like I didn't put any blame on him, and we just talked about it, and it was all good. But basically, I ended up. It was the same landing like Hangman had. Yes, I was actually at that show. So crazy, and crazy, crazy. Yeah, that was scary, scary as hell. Because like I, yeah. So that that exact landing, like I felt, I watched the video, and then, like if you see the video, you can see like how I landed with like my head and it compresses. I felt I landed with like like fully like upside down. I just I landed like forty five degrees maybe, but you can see like how my head compresses and when I I heard like crack. And the moment I landed, I tried to move like all my limbs to see if I had like broken my neck or. If I had gotten paralyzed, because it was like so scary, so scary. Like my whole body, like the whole my, my whole momentum was just stuck with my head. Um, and then we just finished the move and we went home, which is like hilarious to think, because it's like we should have just done the pin from there. But because the, the finishing move wasn't anything that involved the neck, it was like okay. Um, but yeah, that was like the scariest one. But again, like that only had me out for less than a month like i had to miss out on one show which i had never done it was the first time i missed a show due to injury uh but yeah that was like late january and i think late february i had my next match wow so within like for an eight-year career it's not it's not too bad so over here in the United States, a, a big thing, you mentioned Hangman Adam Page and you mentioned Brian Danielson before, you know, concussions are a, a big deal. Head injuries nowadays, at least, you know, in, in wrestling, mm -hmm. we're observing them more. We're looking at them differently um, in the WWE and in WCW here in the United States. 
chair shots were super violent. I mean, just they would take them straight on. And wrestlers that I've talked to nowadays have a lot of lingering symptoms from that. So like CTE, we know more about that now. Yeah. Um, and Christopher Nowinski, former wrestler, has mm -hmm. now gone into the neurological side of how the brain works. Do you find that that is, is prevalently yeah. talked about in other parts of the world as we do here in the United States? Just the cautionary aspects of the brain in itself when it comes to doing different moves or, or using weapons or anything? Mm, not necessarily, but I do. So whenever any situation comes up that could be a problem in that, in that aspect, I would talk about it. I remember there was a friend, uh, there's like, uh, so the Spanish national television radio system, uh, a friend used to work for that. And she actually was super kind and did a very nice piece about CTE wrestling and the trauma the wrestlers we had been going through like for all these years. And also it was at a time where you would see a very, unfortunately, a few people passed in not a long space of time from committing suicide. And that was in some, some of the cases it was related to um, the the problems we have with our damaged brains after wrestling. Um, so I wanted to shine a light on it because obviously it's not a big topic in main society, but there's a good bunch of people that suffer from that and get their lives very heavily compromised because of that. Um, and I'm, I'm scared because I love wrestling, but I know it can be very toxic for my body. And I don't know. I feel like I'm a very, like I'm very bright at mind and, and I can, I like to put my brain to good use and I don't know if there's going to be a day where I'm not going to have such clarity or like the person that I am is going to be changed because of that. And I'm so sorry for people that have been changed and have had their lives affected because of that. So I'm always very aware or try to be very aware. Of course, I take hits in my head and stuff like that because it happens because it's resting and we, we hit each other. So we're going to going to take hits but i try i try to protect myself as much as possible i try to be as safe as possible and just be conscious of it and if there's any situation where i think a big hit to the head could happen try to avoid it or to protect it or to work it in a way that we hurt each other as, as little as possible yeah it's definitely something that has affected the wrestling world and we've seen a lot of people like you mentioned get their lives completely changed after they do walk away from wrestling. What their quality of life is like after after their in ring years are are over. Um, let me uh, let me kind of switch gears here. A question that a lot of people uh, have funny stories about is ring gear itself. Uh, early on in a lot of people's careers, you know, you're told, "Hey, get some ring gear," and sometimes you got to borrow it from people. What was it like when you broke into wrestling? As far as what you had versus how do you get your ring gear now? Is there a certain person you go to? Is there a, a point of contact or is it one of those, you know what, are you done using this? Hey, you mind if I buy this off you? So tell me a little about how you handle the purchasing of ring gear. So at first I would have, um, I was literally just wrestling, what we call it disco pants. They were just like women's leggings that were shiny because uh, when I debuted it, were some kind of like a powers power rangers faction which i was actually uh the green one so rest in peace uh, um but yeah um it was literally just 
green shining leggings and I bought some secondhand boots from from someone else the, from our company that wasn't using them anymore. They were like Jeff Hardy boots. Um, that was my first gear. Then when I turned heel, I had to to get a different set because also I had like a different name. And it was just, again, women's leggings. I bought a different set of women's leggings to use the fabric um, to write down like my name and stuff like that. So that was the first one that had like any kind of customization, but it was like horrendous. The thing is at the time, with all of us being very amateur in Spain, ring gear wasn't great. We didn't, knew, we didn't know any people that had ring gear. We didn't have the money to invest in it. It was all very... It was all very amateur, but it was accepted by the crowd, so it was okay. And then I started going to the UK, and it was like, okay, we need gear. Especially like for King of Trios, I was like, oh, we need like something good, something different. Um, so when I did, uh, we found out about a Mexican, found out about a Mexican person that uh, used to do ring gear that looked very good and at a very decent price. So we started talking to him and I got ordered a couple of sets of gear, one for just my standard character and one for King of Trios. And we all ordered like white gear for King of Trios because it was actually like a Game of Thrones, um, Game of Thrones uh, themed King of Trios and we were House White Wolf. Nice. So we all like A-Kid Size and I, we all got our, ourselves um, white gear that looked gorgeous on that day. Obviously the same problem with, white gear it looks gorgeous on that day and for maybe like a couple months and then it starts looking horrendous but, <laughs> but yeah uh we i got that set of gear for myself and i got and we all got that set of gear for three of us and after that i kind of kept like the same pattern and just started getting different colors and stuff like that and the last set of gear that i had um i did it myself i bought some fake jeans that were actually leggings would look like jeans and I painted them, them. I painted it all over them myself. That and the and the vest that I wear. Um, I think my next step will be something similar to the jeans, but in a different fabric, and trying to find someone that I can print, like, and do a full custom print on on leggings, on on actual tights. So that's probably the next step. But for now, I'm I have the that set of gear and the the ones with the patterns that I'm going to keep on using. Now, are you a fan of? And maybe, rest- maybe I've talked to my mom. And I told her because she, because she's a good. Oh, sorry, sorry, it's just a delay. Yeah, my mom's my mom's a decent seamstress, so I'm trying to convince her to start doing wrestling gear her, herself. Oh, she could make some good money on that. I tell you what, absolutely. And uh, you can uh, you can get a little piece of that action from uh, being a reference to other people as well. I mean. What a way! I mean, look at you getting your mom over in the wrestling business. What a good kid! I tell you what. Um, let me. That kind of leads me into this question. We've seen recently in wrestling. <laughs> we've seen recently in wrestling a lot of people have gotten away from wearing typical ring boots, and now we're seeing a lot of people. It's the uh, the kick pad days. Um, you know, we've seen that originally. You know, Brian Danielson did it, obviously. Sean Waltman, also known as X-Pac, he was big on those as well. Then you would see people um, like Christopher Daniels also did those, and AJ Styles did those. But what is your thoughts on that? Are you a kick pad person, 
or are you a traditionalist as far as just wrestling boots themselves? What's your what's your take on those, and do you really see much of a difference? Oh, we were talking about it the other day in the locker room. Um, I'm a kickpad kickpad guy now, and wow, it's such a difference. Not just because of the kickpads, which is like a huge difference, especially now that I'm doing a like a few more kicks than I do when I started wearing them. But just wearing like amateur boots under the kick pads, oh, it's such a difference from wrestling boots. Like wrestling boots for a shoe that is meant to be used for a sport, it's not comfortable. <laughs> and it's not a shoe that is designed to to be used for a sport. So when I switched to amateurs and I started training and wrestling in amateurs, it was like, oh, 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 wow. <laughs> this is so comfortable. <laughs> So yeah, um, I'm very happy with boots and kick pads. I sorry, uh, amateurs and kick pads. I love the boot look, and I like it, and I like seeing it in other people. If they don't do kicks, if they do kicks, please wear kick pads. <laughs> I know it, it's for protecting yourself, but they also do protect the other person a little bit, and they just make up for good noise and everything. But without giving away too much, I like the look of the boots. But I'm super comfortable with like amateurs and kick pads, and I think I'm gonna stick with it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, kind of an interesting thing I like to go into with people here is, you know, you've you've been in wrestling for a while. What is it like when someone sees you outside of wrestling and they recognize you? Um, are is it is it still like, oh my gosh, you know, it, it takes you back, or is it one of those things that like it's kind of a cool moment? to be able to be out there in public and whether you're at a restaurant or whether you're at a, an event or wherever, what's that like when someone comes up to you and, and they talk to you and they say, man, I really enjoy what you're doing. Tell me a little bit about that feeling. Oh, it's an, it's an amazing feeling, especially like, especially in Spain where wrestling isn't that big. If you get recognized because of wrestling in Spain, like I usually have like tend to have like a big sympathy towards a, that person and, and I'm very happy. Like I usually enjoy those moments and those small connections, because every little fan, like every single fan that we have in Spain, um, to me they make a difference. It's not like in the U.S. If there was one more fan or one less fan, it would make a difference, but not as big for sure. Like, but here every single one counts, and I really appreciate those moments. And when it's outside of Spain. It's great for me because it feels like, okay, I'm away from home. This is not where I'm from. And, and I have people recognizing me for the stuff that I work so hard for. So it's obviously, it's always a good moment. And I feel with wrestling, unless you get to like the very big, big, big stages, um, you never get to a point of famous where you cannot do your own life. Sure, if you're like a rock or John Cena or stuff like that, yes people recognize you everywhere you go and stuff like that. But even people in like main roster, WWE, Elite, um, New Japan, or any big company, like if they're not like the biggest people in those rosters, they should, they for sure will get recognized, but I'm sure they can do a decent living without feeling they're going to be watched and interrupted. Uh, anywhere they go so i feel with wrestling even if you do get fame it's not a fame that completely 
destroys your life in terms of being a normal person. Um, except for like counting exceptions. So I feel like those encounters are usually fun. Let me let me ask you this one as we're kind of wrapping things up here. Ultimate goal. I mean, where do you see yourself ultimately in your own vision? Where do you want to see yourself before your career is over? Is it something you want to spend time in Japan? Do you want to spend more time over in uh, in Europe? Is it something where you know you you really do fancy the way things are done in the United States? What's your ultimate, and where do you want to be, and and where do you see yourself before your career is over? Um, I've realized uh, with time passing that I've become more flexible with my goals and with my yeah my destination and. I'm more about the journey. Because at first when I started, it was like, oh, let's get to WWE. And then it was like, oh, I want to get to New Japan. And then it was like, oh, I would love to do some Ring of Honor and I would love to make it to All Elite. And now I'm thinking, oh, I would like to maybe go and do Japan at some point and do a tour and just um, that I'm more happy enjoying the journey. And my ultimate goal with wrestling is just to be able to provide a good living for myself and for my mother. And if I can have enough to provide for myself, for my mother, and I can add to the other people around me that are not my direct family, then great. Um, and all of that while enjoying the journey, trying to put, on, to put out some good art or trying to put out a good product and try to be part of a community and try to build my local scene too. So I'll be honest with you, um, right now I'm very open. I would have bigger, not bigger, but like more set priorities a few years ago. But right now my priority is try to get myself into a life position where I can make a living out of wrestling. If I can make a comfortable living out of wrestling, that's very good. I can just survive now, but if I can make a comfortable living out of wrestling and save money and have the last few years of my life, of my mom's life, she's 60, but she's like, she feels super young and she's very well. So give her a nice back end of her life and just be able to provide for myself, for the people around me to enjoy my time while I do that. And to try to put on good matches and good entertaining products and, and just have fun doing what I do. So I'm very, I'm very open. And for the last few years that I've been doing this, let's say indie travel man route, uh, I've been enjoying it and I've been loving it. And I've, and I felt that it's super fun and it's giving me, Loads of different experiences. So I'm very up for anything that comes my way. Well, it sounds like you got a great head on your shoulders. You definitely care about your mom, which is most important. Family comes first. And it seems like you're really grounded in as far as what your your goals are. And I think you're going to find tremendous success in whatever you do. I think you come across as somebody who genuinely loves the business. And I think that is, first and foremost, the most important thing. Um it has been such a pleasure getting a chance to talk to you and and hear about your life and your experiences and your stories in wrestling. Let me uh, let me throw it to you with this one. Where can people find you? It's what we call plug time. Uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Instabook, Instaface, whatever those things are. I have no idea. I'm not much of a social media guy. Where can people buy merch and where can people find out more about you? So the floor is yours, my friend. So first of all, thank you very much for your kind words. I really appreciate them. And thank you for your time. Right now, you can find me at Carlos Romo PW on Twitter Twitter and Instagram. I'll probably get high very soon. I've been trying to get it the last couple of days. 
but it just wasn't working on my phone. Apparently, the app's a bit broken. So if Twitter does go down, I'll probably go to either that or Mastodon with the same handle or Carlos Romo without PW. But right now, Twitter, Instagram, Carlos Romo, PW. I have a big cartel that I might put some T-shirts on soon. I'm trying to do just like like just selling t-shirts on shows and having merch on shows but i think i'm gonna start shipping again soon so carlos Rob pw on twitter and instagram and you'll find out everything about me anything i do i put on there that sounds tremendous carlos you have been a pleasure to talk to and it's so interesting to hear different people's stories about their life and experiences in wrestling and you've taken away so many positive things and you, you have battled injuries and whatnot but i think at the end of the day you, uh, you have definitely nothing but positive experiences so far. And if we ever get a chance, I'd love to go ahead and check in with you on your career down the road. That'd be wonderful. Sounds great. I had a great time. Thanks so much for today. You got it. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. Uh, Carlos Romo um, coming to us from Spain, which is uh, super, super cool. It's, it's nice to talk to people who are uh, international and who give you a perspective on the business the way they see it inside the United States, the way they see the business in other parts of the world. It's interesting to hear about the way people train as well, what people are influential to them and how they got their start in the business. And, you know, no matter where you are in the world, it seems like everyone has to pay their dues. You know, it's a it's a phrase you hear quite often in wrestling, whether you have to do security or set up ring chairs. Um, it, it seems to follow that same pattern, but... You know what, Carlos is a tremendous athlete. He's a tremendous human being, first and foremost. And I want to thank him so much for taking time out of his busy schedule to go ahead and uh, and talk to us today. I'm going to go ahead and tweet out those links for his social media so you guys can follow him as well. You can follow him on uh, his matches on YouTube as well. So with that being said, my name is Mike Freeland. It has been super fun. Thank you so much for joining me on the Front Row Material brand. We'll catch you next time. My name is Mike Freeland, and if you're looking for an exciting wrestling podcast to add to your library, then look no further than the Front Row Material brand. Each and every week, I sit down with some of the most exciting superstars in the world of wrestling, from upcoming stars in the indies to dedicated veterans of the squared circle. I also host a daily podcast called Headlines, which gives you the updated information on all your favorite superstars in all your favorite promotions, giving you not only the backstage look, but also what are the industry experts saying about things. And finally, join myself and my executive producer, The Rit, where we talk about everything in the world of professional wrestling all across the landscape, from storylines to interviews to what's happening and what we think is going to be happening the next time you turn on your TV. Don't miss it. It's the Front Row Material brand brought to you by the MLW Radio Network. The world of MLW.